Game Cool Books, episode 68, Not a Rule You Can Break. This time we're in chapters 20 and 21 of The Ember Spyglass by Philip Pullman. Chapter 20, Climbing. Starts with an epigraph from Emily Dickinson. I gained it so by climbing slow, by catching at the twigs that grow between the bliss and me. The poem goes on. It hung so high as well the sky attempt by strategy. I said I gained it. This was all. Look how I clutch it lest it fall, and I a pauper go, unfitted by an instant's grace, for the contented beggar's face I wore an hour ago. So, I think along with William Blake, Emily Dickinson's poems are short, concise and incredibly dense. Um, their sing-song rhythm uh, conceals uh, incredible depths. Um, so as usual, this is something I have not read before and probably would never have found if not for Pullman. I'm certainly not qualified to analyze it, but I would point out that that uh, first passage in it is um, almost a one-to-one -one correspondence to what we actually see happening in this chapter. And I wonder if perhaps more than most of these epigraph poems and things, this might have influenced how Pullman approached this portion of his story. We're back with Mary Malone in the world of the Mulefa, of course. She's working on braiding rope together uh, in order to climb into the high parts of the trees. The Mulefa have no word for climb, which I think is a little funny of course, they personally don't climb having wheels, but surely there are other animals that they observe that do climb, um, one would think. But anyway, uh, this is again a kind of convenient plot point that is just thrown in here, uh, that once in California for a conference, Mary Malone had met a mathematician who did climb in the redwood trees, and uh, so she knew a little bit about it or had the the idea behind it at least. Um, she of course uh, has some mountain climbing experience um, that's sort of dropped in there at the end of the subtle knife. She's got her uh, big backpack full of the things she, she'll need for her journey. Um, so Mary Malone represents I think um, a certain amount of uh, simplifying the story for the purposes of moving things along. This is one of the shorter if not the shortest uh, chapters in the in the whole series. Um, it's quite important though, because of course, this is where uh, the amber spyglass itself is finally mentioned. Um, anyway, she uh, doesn't love the idea of climbing solo into the trees, but can't be helped. Um, she surely never expected that she would do this in another world, although she had always wanted to climb uh, like that mathematician she met. Um, she knows some knots, apparently, because she does a fisherman's knot to make some hand and foot holds on her main line. Um, as a counterpart to her spyglass making and uh, rope braiding, she's also got a bow and arrows that she puts together in the course of a day's work here. Um, interestingly enough, she doesn't seem to consult the I Ching at this point, um, although the twigs mentioned in the poem and uh, that form her arrows 
kind of made me think of those sticks that are used for casting divination with the ancient text. Um, that's not mentioned. Uh, instead, we hear about the quiet musical whispers of her friends talking about her as she tries to sleep that night. Um, kind of counterpart to the whispering ghosts that we'll meet shortly. Um, again, this is a strange idea to them, alien, um, and Mary is also anxious about it. But again, we have a certain amount of good luck, and on just her third shot with her bow and arrow, she manages to get a line around something that holds up in the tree, and um, it's a kind of Goldilocks moment. The first one was too low, the second too far, or at least she pulled too hard on it, but the third was just right. They affix the base of the rope to a root, like a buttress, um, again, that cathedral imagery, but also combined with um, physical feminine imagery here. It's as thick as her hips, so it had better be solid, she thought. There's some wry humor there um, and uh, the kind of uh, stiff upper lip that we'd expect from an English woman in a strange land, I suppose. Some colonialism perhaps peeking through there. But um, up she goes and uh, tries not to think about the long fall if whatever this is attached to should break. Um, it's a lot like Lee Scoresby uh, making his emergency landing in the world of Chittagatse, the night of the storm. Um, now, the story rattles along here. Um, she makes it to the canopy in less time than she thought, about 15 minutes of climbing, um, and then 10 minutes more with some fixed lines for security um, in place of the kinds of friends that she uses climbing rocks. Uh, 10 minutes more brings her right into the highest part of the tree. We get a great description of the leaves, the flowers, absurdly small, again, very uh, like the kind of pine cones in the redwood trees, um, a tiny coin-sized thing that would later become the seed pots that idea of size and um, smallness and largeness, delicateness and strength, um, again, seems rather feminine to go along with the whole flower imagery. But we also have that monetary image brought back here. We just saw Lyra put a gold coin in the drawer of a table um, and the association of coins with the eyes of the dead and crossing into the world of the dead uh, is perhaps just a little bit in the background there. She rests in the fork of the tree, looks out over the clear sea in one direction and the low rises of the gold prairie back in the other. Um, so a ton of color imagery here to balance out the drabness of the world of the dead, um, but laced through with those black highways that again make all of this possible. There's a uh, imagination that comes over her here of the tree like a huge dim benevolence. It's compared to a pair of giant hands. Um, definitely not thinking of Treebeard in The Lord of the Rings right now. Um, but um, instead something very different, a bliss that she felt only once before and not when she took her vows as a nun 
uh, a kind of litotes, a, an understatement, which is uh, rather pointed here um, to a sexual or at least romantic experience that she must have had, um, and perhaps only once before. Um, so we get a, a little glance at Mary's biography there. I wonder if it was that same mathematician that she met in California. And uh, later in the story, we, we get the suggestion it probably was not, but but someone else will, will hear her tell us about. Um, but I think we're meant to be a little curious, at least, uh, of what uh, quality that bliss might uh, contain. It Again, bliss being a word straight from the Emily Dickinson poem. And in that poem, presumably, again, about a romantic and sexual experience. Um, she um, is brought back to herself uh, by a pain in her ankle, kind of Achilles heel moment there maybe, uh, and dizzy with a sense of oceanic gladness. Um, the sea, the trees, the prairie, all bring together a kind of cosmic whole, which is uh, has its equal counterpart in her. Um, that, that association between her consciousness and the wholeness of nature, I think, is, again, very important uh, in this moment. And that sense of um, the uh, creativity that has brought her here, um, because, of course, she has her tube of bamboo encasing the glass uh, of her uh, amber lenses that allow her to see the straw or dust. Um, this is mentioned just in passing here that the Mulefa made the tube for her. So it's a kind of uh, collaboration between her and them to create the object, which of course titles the entire book, The Amber Spyglass. And it's just mentioned in that one sentence. Uh, we don't see that, that process, uh, which I find interesting. Um, for all that, uh, she um, has brought herself to a place where she can see what's going on with the straff, the tiny beings. They, they're almost um, individuals uh, at this point. They're like dust motes in the sun or molecules in water with their random motion. But as she observes, there's a deeper universal movement out towards the sea. She watches it curiously and observes the flower heads until she was sure. What she was sure about, we have to wait to hear. But um, at that point, she carefully climbs back down. Um, and that's maybe the second part of the Dickinson poem implied there, the um, going down, which is such an important image in Pullman and in myth generally. She finds her friends in a fearful state. They're a great anxiety. Um, uh, Atal touches her all over and whinnies uh, uh, as she meets her. Um, they call together a throng of visitors and the locals uh, to give the news. So she communicates with all her Mulefa courtesy after Sadamax convenes the meeting. Uh, that from high in the treetop, she could see this current of the shraf moving against the wind, blowing in from the sea, moving outwards. Uh, it's not visible from the ground. They had never heard of such a thing. They can't observe it, nor can she from the ground. It seems to her 
that the trees are responsible for filtering this draft, that some is attracted to the flowers that are turned up to receive it. When it normally would be falling straight, it would fertilize them like pollen from the stars. Again, uh, I wonder if there are bees, uh, animals, climbing things that might be involved in this process, but uh, Pullman leaves that out for the sake of simplicity, I suppose. Um, Dickinson has some other poems about bees that are very lovely. But anyway, uh, the idea is clear to her that the uh, flowers, the trees must have evolved like that to um, receive that normal downward flow. But at some point, something happened to the shraf, not to the trees themselves directly, um, such that it began to flow in a different direction. Uh, there's still a few flowers turned properly um, just by chance. Uh, this is something like the Lucretian swerve um, of the random elements uh, of his cosmos, which sometimes turn aside and um, introduce connections where otherwise all would be simple falling, um, a kind of happy fall, uh, we might imagine. But instead of uh, causing uh, life and existence, in this case, that swerve has caused um, decay and destruction. So for them to save the trees and their lifestyle, uh, she needs to find out why this has happened. She needs to uh, make more observations. Mulefa, meanwhile, trying to recall any mention of such a thing in their legends, a, a wind of Shraf um, rather than a straight fall down from the stars. That sort of stellar influence idea, again, um, is a, a medieval notion, an ancient notion of um, planetary influences um, that I think the implication there is that with science, with enlightenment, um, that whole cosmic worldview is disrupted. And indeed, um, based on the timing, I think that the reader could probably piece together that something happening around the time the knife was created, um, that same time of the scientific revolution and enlightenment uh, is probably responsible, or at least correlated with this change in the motion of straff or dust. But Mary needs to see uh, if this wind is constant or if it is like the wind from the sea that changes with day and night she'll sleep up in the trees on a platform and the Mulefa are happy to build whatever can help her uh, they arrange a pulley system they begin building immediately um, glad to have something practical to do and um, this will make it safer she won't have to climb again so that idea of the climb up and the climb down is replaced with a more practical, safe, scientific, we might say, um, approach for um, for proper uh, maintenance of the activity, um, such that it not be a one-time thing. So I think we can see there may be a way in which science and engineering can be wedded with the poetic uh, and unique experience. Um, the imagery is all very nautical with spars and lines, but of course it refers to going into the tops of the trees. Um, again, that cosmic universality between the sea, the land, the, the living things uh, is implied. Now, 
As often happens, we get a brief mention of Father Gomez at the very end of a chapter about Mary Malone. He uh, tracks her like her shadow or her dark alter ego. He too has talked to the couple by the olive grove. Um, sounds like nothing bad happened to them, thankfully. Um, and he's been off the track for quite a while. He hasn't been able to find what happened to her after that. Uh, his crucifix and his rifle are twin tokens of his utter dedication, though. He will not give up. And he gets a lucky break because of a dis difference in the weather. Um, it's dry and he's parched in the world of Chittagatse, but it has just rained in the world of the Mulefa. And that water shows up as a wetness on the rock. He thinks it's a spring, but of course it is better than that. It is his way in to following uh, his prey through the window. Um, and with that uh, ominous ending, we transition back to Will and Lyra's story. From one of the shortest chapters, we move into one of the longest. Chapter 21, Harpies, the Harpies, opens with a quote from Byron, from one of his letters. Um, I hate all things fiction. Uh, there should always be some foundation of fact for the most airy fabric. And pure invention is but the talent of a liar. All very relevant here. Um, Essentially, the voice of what Tialis was saying to Lyra in the last chapter, and uh, much more strongly put in the voice of the harpies that we'll meet here. Um, this comes from a letter, again, uh, between Byron and his publisher, um, John Murray. Apparently, uh, he was working on um, some of his major poems and trying to get them safely published at that time. Um, these letters themselves, of course, became very famous. Uh, Byron was a kind of romantic rock star at the time. Um, and he's talking about a number of um, uh, poems, plays, works of art that he's seeing there in Venice. Um, so I think he's directly referring to a work called The Ghost Seer um, by Schiller, the German poet. Um, it sounds like uh, Byron is critical of Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice and Othello um, because they are fictional, I, I guess is the implication here. Um, but uh, the suggestion I think uh, is a little overstated. It seems to me that there is no such thing as pure invention um, or the lack of any foundation of fact in a fantasy. Um, I think that Pullman is probably working out his own feelings about <laughs> his story and its fantastic elements here. Of course, they're grounded not so much in uh, what we would understand as modern fantasy as, uh, or at least equally as they are in ancient epic, um, which is, I think, as true as anything in its metaphorical way. Um, behind his statement of hatred here, I think it stands Achilles uh, famous line about hating like the gates of death, that man who says one thing but hides another in his heart. Um, in the Iliad, he's talking there to Odysseus, um, the gates of death, um, anger, hatred, wrath, uh, and of course, lies and truth are all 
incredibly important here as our own heroes are passing into the world of the dead, as Achilles must and as Odysseus does as well. Um, chapter opens with Will and Lyra both waking early uh, in a heavy dread, again, that sense of weight, of downward movement, of, of sadness, um, a uh, corresponding kind of feeling to Mary's upward anxiety uh, and blissful elation. They are like the condemned prisoners on the day of execution, um, but there is that kind of airy fantasy that goes along with that. The, um, the moths lassoed near the lamp for the dragonflies of their companions, the Galavespians. Um, so there's this kind of lightness interjected there. Will goes for a walk outside. Um, last time he did something like that, Lyra got kidnapped, so uh, fingers crossed here, but it's okay. It just allows for a rather tender moment between her and Salmachia. Um, again, Lyra says a little peevishly that they don't have to come if they're afraid, um, but of course it's her own projection of her own stubbornness and fear. Um, the lady says that if they do die, they'll have died doing something important, and that seems to resonate with Lyra. Um, she'd never really looked at the lady before, but in the smoky light, she sees a face calm and kindly, but not beautiful. Um, exactly the kind of face you would want if you were sick or in need. It, it's something Lyra has never really had, aside from Egyptian boat mother or a Oxford housekeeper, um, or briefly when she was kept asleep by her own mother and, and doesn't know it. Um, she had no one to read to her in bed or tell her stories or sing to her, lap her in safety, warmth, and love. And that wish for a child of her own comes back to her here, and that wish that she might have a voice like that to soothe the child in someday. It uh, chokes her with emotion. And um, a very much more mature sort of emotion than we're used to with Lyra. They go out into the mist uh, following her death through the wraiths of fog, like forlorn lovers clinging to their embarrassed cables. Again, a very direct analog to that in Galatea, um, Pullman's early novel. Um, the uh, dragonflies are kind of sewing this together by their movement. Uh, they can delight in those bright colors, but there's really nothing else there. There are croaks and splashes of amphibians somewhere out there. Um, I think of the frogs by Aristophanes here, his kind of mock or satire epic of a descent to the underworld. There's a very strange interlude with a toad where um, it looks at the children with pain-filled expression as if they uh, meant to hurt it. Tialis thinks it would be merciful to kill the being, but they ask him, how could he possibly know that? Um, Will thinks that if they killed it, they'd simply be taking it with them, and it wants to stay there. Again, that idea of wanting to be home is implicit in a lot of what he's saying in these parts of the book. Um, it's better alive than dead. Uh, to kill it would be considering their feelings rather than the toads. Got to be one of the great lines in this uh, portion of the book. Um, there's a kind of uh, openness they can sense um, 
Pan, with his lemur eyes, can't see any more than, than others, um, clings to Lyra, trembling and trembling. Again, that ominous note. A wave uh, breaking um, draws them closer together as they come to the shore, um, but they're really just mostly ripples here. Um, kind of inversion of that calm world of the dunes that they had left um, before coming to the world of the dead. The path trails off to the left, uh, winds up at a wooden jetty. It's like a thickening of the mist um, and Lyra's death vanishes before they can ask what to do next. Um, becomes a repetitive splash and um, we have a wonderful kind of uh, image here of the dragonflies as heraldic guardians as they peer out uh, trying to see it's again a kind of inversion of that game that Amma and her demon play on the waterfalls as they brush droplets of water from their eyes and pan like before at the fish house, tells Lyra not to go further. Um, but as she looks at Will, who's grim and eager, and the Galavespians watchful, she does not give up. Um, then a boat appears. Um, this ancient rowboat and its uh, ferrymen are well attested in uh, all the ancient myths you could imagine, um, but also in Pullman's uh, Belle Sauvage, uh, we have a kind of image of this too. The boatman is aged beyond age. Again, that repetition, but also with amplification. Um, his hands crippled, his eyes sunk. Uh, he grips the iron ring on the jetty to bring the boat in. And immediately we come to the uh, kind of climactic moment in the arc of this portion of the story. He says that if Lyra comes, he must stay, that being Pan. Again, the idea of paying a price, putting the coins on the eyes of the dead is made rather more uh, visceral here because the sacrifice that Lyra must make is to leave part of herself behind. Um, when Pan hears himself singled out here, he turns ermine white. Um, again, that appalled uh, ghost-like color. Um, she says, he is me, and that if he stays, as he must, they'll die. But the boatman asks, isn't that what you want? And then Lyra truly realizes that this is the consequence of their journey they've been so determined and devoted to uh, making here. She interrupts herself. Uh, that interruption thing happens here within herself as she stops from saying that it's not fair because the others don't have to give up something. Um, she can't imagine Pan staying back alone here in this terrible place and living without her. Um, the narration trails off in her voice, her internal voice, that's impossible, never. Um, she watches the Galavespians 
intercede on her behalf, like the stir at the back of the courtroom. There could be a messenger with a pardon. Again, that messenger word meaning angel, but no, he has to stay. Um, Will speaks up now, that idea that she had bitten back, uh, that they don't have to leave part of themselves behind. But the boatman says that they do. It's simply that she has the misfortune of seeing and talking to that part of herself beforehand. They won't know it until they're on the water. And it's too late. All who die or go to the world of the dead have to leave that part, for there is no passage to the land of the dead for such as him. This implies that whatever the demon is, it is, in some sense, undying, or can't maintain its form, its essence, when the person dies. And uh, we'll see more about that demon nature as we go along. Um, the referent that springs to mind for Lyra is uh, that of Bolvanger, of course, the place where children were separated from their demons and did live, at least in some way, for some period of time. They didn't go through Bolvanger for this, she thinks to herself, and worries about finding one another again. Again, she's already thinking in terms of having to go through this. Not doing it is not an option. Um, and the, uh, the weeping that comes from her is such that it terrifies damaged creatures like that toad out in the, uh, the waste. Um, will says, repeating it twice, that they will come back. Um, Boatman doesn't think it's possible, at least not this way, but he says, we will, again, his own name um, being his main trait here. Um, the death, Lyra's death, implied that it hasn't been known for a long time. The boatman suggests that it has never been known. Of the millions that he's ferried, none have returned. Um, Will implores him to be compassionate, but the ferryman says, no, this is not a rule you can break. It is a law, like this one. And he picks up some water and allows it to trickle back into the lake. Um, it's unclear whether he means gravity or, again, a more medieval or ancient concept of elements and things finding their level uh, within the cosmos. At any rate, um, he can't make the water fly upwards. Um, again, that vertical imagery of climbing and falling is Im implied there. Um, the demon, we're told, is a kind of airy being goes into the air when the person goes under the ground. So Tialis prepares to attack um, as a direct way to cut through this um, problem, but nothing, he says, can hurt him. Um, the boatman might not know about the knife, or maybe he is even exempt from that. Um, it's not a possibility that the story entertains here. Um, Will, instead, is focused on Lyra. As the boatman says, comfort the child, take no notice of me. Will can hardly watch as she does the cruelest thing imaginable, as she suffers for and with and because of Pan, weeping and weeping. Um, it's a sound too unhappy for Will to bear. Time after time, she pushes her demon away and 
can't be true to their heart deep and life deep bond. Um, she couldn't uh, stay behind. She tells Pan that Will says they're coming back. She swears her love and her um, devotion to spending all her life finding him again. We do see that actually in the Secret Commonwealth, and um, perhaps we'll get a bit more of that in the Serpentine book coming out shortly. She's got to, she says, repeats it. Um, now, what's not said here is entertained. Uh, it's a kind of negative capability again that Pan doesn't ask why, doesn't ask if she loves Roger more than him or Will for that matter. He knows the answers. He knows that speaking would make it impossible for her to resist. And so he stays quiet. Um, Will, for his part, admires this courage, is wrenched by the separation they're undergoing. The air between them is electric. Again, those forlorn lovers and, and barrack cables. Um, and he can't even tell what kind of animal Pan is. So young he looks. More misery than creature. Um, again, that kind of personification of an emotion, in this case, misery, as before it was anger. Now, the cry that tears her heart um, is echoed by Pan um, in a world where echoes are impossible for all these repetitions. Um, there is no true echo here. And that suggests to me that um, the, uh, the, the singleness, the solitariness that is kind of the most um, terrible thing about dying, um, of being alone. But of course, all of them are undergoing this together. So there is a kind of fellowship or um, compassion, a suffering with that they experience here. Although they don't know their demons, they feel the loss. It's like an iron hand pulling Will's heart. It's worse than losing his fingers. It's had a mental component of something secret and private being dragged into the ocean, uh, into the open. Um, he likens it to, saying, kill my mother instead. I don't love her. And her hearing it and offering herself, pretending she hadn't. Um, it's a very... Uh, Christological image, actually. It's the worst thing um, imaginable, the narrator says. Um, and there is the um, second but not final time in which the two of them, Will and Lyra, see that same expression on one another's face. Um, we'll have to watch for the last moment of this. Um, but again, it's a very clear representation of their, um, their compassion and uh, shared emotion here. Their mutual self-consciousness as well. A, a glimpse of the way in which what is the fall of self-consciousness, of death, of sin, also um, allows for perhaps something uh, 
redemptive, something salvific. And um, the only ones indifferent to all this are the boatman and the dragonflies. It's, it's not clear what the boatman is, uh, whether he was ever human, um, if it is possible for him to show compassion at all. And the dragonflies, of course, are simply animals or rather fantastic beings of the imagination. Um, their, their voices become raw. They feel themselves adjusting, measuring their own strength and curious for what's going to come next. Will's arm is strong around Lyra, they're peering forward to this cliff or island. Again, they can tell at first in terms of the sound changing into an enclosing and then a darkening of the mist. Uh, their voices are hardly their own. Again, whatever the demon is, it has a physical and a kind of um, character component that we can think of as the voice. Um, it is the gate through which everyone comes, this island is the threshold of the world of the dead. The boatman goes on a bit of a soapbox here talking about kings, queens, murderers, poets, and children. Uh, the kind of um, universality of death is uh, brought out there. And the imagery classical for the world of the dead of cypress and yew trees. Now, Pullman makes this his own by introducing Lyra's thinking of uh, a pan as a, a ferret, showing her how he could move between them and the pain of this separation uh, already changing its quality for her to one of reminiscence um, and longing. Will asks if they are dead, and the boatman says it makes no difference. Um, he talks about those who never believe that they're dead and others who have longed to be dead their whole lives, the suicides whom nothing changes except for the worse, because now there is no escape. You can't make yourself alive again. Again, you can't make water flow back up or bring a demon with you to this place. Maybe the most uh, terrible of all, the infants scarcely born, he's rode on his lap many times to this land, um, whereas the old folks, the rich ones, are the worst, um, talking about their gold, their laws, their powerful friends popes, kings, and dukes, who will be there too soon enough. Um, they can't hurt him. They fall silent in the end. They know the truth in the end. So he won't contradict Lyra, who swears that she'll come back. Um, he says, what you are, you'll know soon enough. And I think that has another sense to it. Um, they'll know the truth of their own natures in their most essential form. Um, now, Lyra won't leave the boat at first, just as she was unable to get in. Now she's unable to leave because Pan won't be able to think of her properly once she's gone, but she has to. Um, she has to follow uh, Will, who has already gotten out. And she tells the boatman to pass her message back that she's thankful that she loves Pan the best of all living or the dead, and the boatman promises to tell him. Um, he fades out from the story, and indeed we don't see 
whether he does or does not pass that message along. Um, along with their voices, uh, their very skin becomes like a lace for air to flow in and out of, cold on that raw heart wound. Um, and now she thinks not of Pan, who must be feeling the same thing, but of Roger, who felt that as he plunged down, not to Davy Jones' locker, of course, but down off the precipice in the far north uh, of Svalbard. Now, uh, the drip of water, again, that gravity or downward motion is brought in, um, but also the power of water to uh, grow things. Even here, there's ancient slime that's alive. There is something alive in this world, it seems. And those cries, um, which might be human, coming from beyond this stone wall with its um, uh, its, its deep sunk door. This um, is the introduction of the harpy herself as she brushes aside the little war horses eager for battle with a brutal wing, uh, a great bird like a vulture, with face and breasts of a woman. Will thinks of pictures he's seen and the word harpy comes to his mind. Um, so Will has had at least a little bit of a classical education of the kind that Pullman gave his students when he was a school teacher, um, telling the Greek and Roman myths. Now, uh, another aged creature beyond the witches um, with the cruelty and misery of thousands of years marking her features. She is not just repulsive to look at, but a putrescent stink wafts from her. Um, she has this terrible voice as well, um, but it's harsh and mocking rather than wounded. Um, Will feels himself hating and fearing her more than any human being he's, a, he's ever known. Um, to Will, or to rather Lyra's question of who she is, the harpy replies with a scream, a jet of noise, um, that with her appearance, with her smell, nearly uh, causes them to faint. And she follows it up with wild laughter, jeering, merciless like that of children in a playground with no teachers, Will thinks, to keep order. The, uh, the knife is now on his mind. He is prepared to fight um, and tells her to do that as well as scream because they're going through that door. But now she turns her attention to him, blows him a, a mock kiss, and seems to be able to read his thoughts, his fears for his mother. She says she's alone and they will send her nightmares and scream at her. But she doesn't answer his threat to fight, interestingly. Um, as Samakia attacks with a sneak attack this time rather than Tialis, um, she screams and uh, staggers them with the wind of her, uh, of her stench. They cling together um, the uh, hair around her becomes a kind of crest of serpents, so not just a harpy, but a, a Medusa image now. And they um, run for the door, 
um, but are stopped as the hundreds more uh, seem to be gathering along the shore. Um, Lyra calls on the Galavespians to stop their attack as well because she can tell that the harpy is unhurt. So Lyra shows a kind of empathy here um, and a kind of politeness that we've seen from her all along, asks again for the name and, and addresses her as Lady. Um, so there's a close kind of parallel between the Harpies and the Galavespians. As the Galavespians had initially been a threat and become their friends, it's implied, I think, here that Lyra's hoping the same thing will happen with this winged, fantastic creature. Um, out of her corruption and decay, the Harpy says she is no name. Again, a reference perhaps to Odysseus, who tells the Cyclops Polyphemus that he is no man um, in order to trick him. And Lyra too is a storyteller and a liar, frankly. She offers to tell the harpy the story of their journey, um, if that's something she might want. And she says, maybe I would. Um, then in return, they'll let them go in to find the ghost that they've come there to find. And so the harpy bids her to try. Lyra feels in the midst of her pain that she's been dealt the ace of trumps. So we saw the deaths playing dice and now we see another card image to go with that great moment when Lee Scoresby uh, uh, gets all the Egyptians attention playing cards with them um, and allows Lyra to go and meet the bear. But here, uh, instead of Pan, we have Salmachia telling Lyra to be careful. Um, it sounds so much like Pan that I almost wonder if Pullman had initially thought of having the demons come through um, or if he simply uh, needed that same function that the demon had always served to be played now by another character um, who we've seen undergo such a change in, in her characterization throughout these chapters. So anyway, um, Lyra begins shaping in her mind the story she told the night before. Um, we're all set to get one of her ripping yarns um, that she's always been so good at telling to other kids, regaling the Egyptian kids and the urchins she hung out with at Jordan. Um, again, just the way that the great traveler Odysseus uh, regaled his hosts, the Phaeacians, uh, with stories of his fantastic travels. Um, but here, as she's just getting into it, talking of her house, the biggest in the south of England at Abingdon with her d duke and duchess father, mother, the king coming to stay and hunt with them, uh, just as she's about to give a name to this fantastic place that she's imagining, the harpy calls her a liar, launches at her, tears a clump out of her hair, calls her a liar three times. So. Uh, amplifying the repetition, and then three times more as Will uh, branches the knife, hustles Lyra to the door. Um, she's numb and blinded with her own blood from the head wound. That voice of the harpy echoes everywhere, and Lyra's name is merged with the word liar till they are one and the same. 
So this, in some sense, fulfills the boatman's words that they'll know what they are. Uh, Lyra's name has concealed this possibility all along, uh, contained it, that is, and um, wills, of course, his determination, his um, utter uh, devotion to their journey um, as he protects her and cuts open the lock to tumble through into this realm of ghosts while the harpies' cries double and redouble behind them. Again, that repetition, amplification, echoing quality. Um, there is a very important bit here that I think I missed uh, mentioning that just as we get the, um, the prophecy spoken by the boatman confirmed so quickly, we have that long-standing prophecy of Lyra making a great betrayal. Um, the narrator brings back to our attention there at the moment when she leaves Pan behind, that, the narrator says, is the fulfillment of the prophecy. Of course, she had thought that it was to do with Roger, um, or rather perhaps the, the reader thought that because um, Lyra doesn't know about the prophecy to make a betrayal. Um, but the reader perhaps would have thought it was leading Roger to his death. Um, Lyra seems to think that is her main purpose here too. Um, but it's suggested that no, uh, in fact, it referred to this moment, um, to this part of herself she must leave behind in order to perhaps learn uh, a more foundational way who she actually is. Um, if she is a liar, um, it's not all she is, just as Pan is a part of her, but not, in fact, uh, necessary for them to stay alive. Um, and Will and the Galavespians never knew that part of themselves when they left it behind. Um, so they weren't making a betrayal in quite the same way. It's a, another way in which the addition of consciousness, though it brings with it pain, sin, death, um, perhaps also brings with it a, a deeper possibility of understanding oneself and the world. So we see a lot of um, epic and fantastic elements here. We also see some of the most uh, profoundly realistic, I think, um, in this climactic long Harpies chapter uh, that we've paired with its short uh, climbing chapter. The um, action will be continuous from here into the next two chapters, and uh, so I hope I'll uh, be able to talk about those again here shortly. Thanks again for listening.